0: Throughout its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Moscow has repeatedly and regularly carried out attacks where it's either tolerated civilian casualties as acceptable collateral damage, or even embraced indiscriminate tactics deliberately. Considered alongside what's happening domestically in Russia, where political repressions underway for years already have suddenly escalated to something approaching martial law, it's fair to say that state terrorism is a key component of the Kremlin's war policy today. But the Putin regime doesn't have a monopoly on terrorist violence, as two prominent assassinations have demonstrated in the past several months. Last August, pro-invasion propagandist Daria Dugana, who's also the daughter of Eurasianist philosopher and ideologue Alexander Dugan, died behind the wheel of a car after a bomb under the driver's seat exploded as she drove home from a festival outside Moscow. More recently, on April 2nd of this year, a pro-invasion blogger, who self-identified as a war correspondent, named Maxim Fomin, better known as Vladlen Tatarsky, perished at a cafe in St. Petersburg when a bomb hidden inside a gift exploded in his face at a speaking event. In both cases, the assassins identified by the Russian authorities are women. Though verification has eluded journalists so far, the suspect in Dugana's murder is a Ukrainian national named Natalia Vovk, and Tatarsky's alleged bomber is a local resident in St. Petersburg named Daria Trepova. Also in both killings, a mysterious and possibly fictional organization calling itself the National Republican Army has claimed credit. A lot has been written about the victims in these two attacks. The Pope even caused a bit of controversy when he referred to Dugana as an innocent, poor girl thrown in the air by a bomb. Less has been written about the supposed perpetrators of these attacks, given that one was never caught and the other has disappeared into a detention center. I'll be honest with you, when the scale and often indiscriminate violence of Russia's invasion of Ukraine became apparent, I expected another wave of terrorism to hit Russia's homeland, not unlike the attacks that followed Moscow's bloody post-Soviet conquest of Chechnya. So far, that hasn't exactly materialized, but the killings of these pro-invasion bloggers, propagandists, for lack of a better word, has got me thinking about the history of terrorism in Russia. There's something about the ideological targeting here that reminds me of attacks in late 19th century and early 20th century Russia. And that's the subject of this week's show. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. On this week's show, for some insights into the history of political assassinations in Russia, I spoke to two scholars who study revolutionary terrorism and state terrorism in Russia at the turn of the 20th century. Before getting to today's show, I'll take a few seconds to remind listeners that support from Medusa's international audience is more important today than ever, now that the Russian authorities have designated Medusa as an undesirable organization, outlawing our reporting on the grounds that it poses a threat to the foundation's of the Russian Federation's constitutional order and national security. In other words, everything we do now, our investigative reports, our newsletters, our posts on social media, even our podcasts, it's all a crime now inside of Russia. But as it will continue to report events to our readers, millions of whom are still in Russia. We will not submit to this attempted censorship. Now more than ever, your contributions sustain our work, and we need your help also in just putting out the word about our crowdfunding campaign. Okay, let's get to this week's episode. As I have probably mentioned at some point in this show's history, I was born in the early 1980s, and I was 18 years old when terrorists destroyed the Twin Towers in New York City. I would leave home for college just a few days later, and as I remember it, 9-11 shaped many of the seminar conversations I had over the following four years. All of this is to say that my notion of terrorism is very fixed in that particular historical moment, which incredibly... Is now more than 20 years old. But any scholar of Russia knows that terrorist organizations are an important piece of the Tsarist Empire's late history and the early Soviet period also, depending on how you define terrorism. Definitions here are key, of course, given the semantics at play. You've probably heard the phrase, for instance, one man's terrorist is another's freedom fighter, that kind of thing. So what's the history of terrorism as a phenomenon, as a concept, and as a word in Russia? For answers, I turn to Dr. Lynn Ellen Paddock, an associate professor at Dartmouth College where she chairs the Department of Russian and serves as the associate editor of the Russian Review. She's also the author of the 2017 book Written in Blood, Revolutionary Terrorism and Russian Literary Culture, 1861-1881.
1: Basically, the origins are historical because the first thing that we have to remember about terrorism in the Russian context is that it is revolutionary terrorism. So it derives from the French Revolution. And the word terrorist was first used by the French themselves to refer to themselves, right? The Robespierre, the Jacobins. Although it was actually something quite radically innovative and different than what the french did because jacobin terror was basically state terror right the execution of thousands the guillotine the and all guillotine. That. Yeah. yeah exactly so this kind of terror from below this insurgent terrorism revolutionary terrorism that was an innovation of the russian radicals right the russian revolutionaries and the first it seems more thing, modern
0: too like that's more what we associate with today
1: Right. that We associate that with today. At first, they called themselves nihilists, right? That was the first pejorative that was out there. Turgenev had coined that in his novel, his 1862 novel, Fathers and Sons, and it was used to label and to stigmatize the radical generation. But then the radicals themselves repurposed it as something that they sort of a badge of honor, something Mm -hmm. that they called themselves. And then they embraced terrorism as what they were doing, the tactic that they were using, and they actually advocated for it. There were theorists of terrorism, like Narodnaya Volya's Nikolai Marozov, who wrote this pamphlet called The Terrorist Struggle. And he was one of the first theorists of terrorism in terms of what should this struggle look like. What should this tactic include and what were its goals? And he ultimately envisioned it as a transnational method that everyone should embrace to keep autocracy, to keep authoritarian governments in check, sort of as a check, literally, in terms of checks and balances, Mm -hmm. a check on illegitimate and autocratic government. So, yes, the Russian revolutionaries called themselves terrorists. The Russian government used various words to describe them. Villain, zladi. Also, they used kramolnik, right? So, seditionist. That would be one of the words that they used before the word terrorist really gained currency. So, it was the revolutionaries themselves, and then as their activity became more widely known, throughout the world, internationally, in Western Europe. The Western mass media, the international mass media, alternately refer to them as nihilists, Russian nihilists, or Russian terrorists. So that's when the word terrorism really comes into sort of Western usage, and people become aware of what the nihilist slash terrorist is. Mm-hmm. and this is re- really becomes a figure of fascination for the west in particular but not just for the west for asia as well in japan so the russians create a phenomenon essentially that is really an epiphenomenon i would say terrorism revolutionary terrorism that's a short story in russian history the main story the main show is always state terror and Russian revolutionary terrorism arises as a reaction to state terrorism, and really by the Tsarist
0: Empire is that what you're. Yeah,
1: by mm-hmm. the Tsarist Empire, and only exists for a relatively short time. But it makes a tremendous impact on the Russian imagination, the international imagination, and also it bequeaths a political strategy, a strategy of political violence to the to the world.
0: And why does it last so briefly? Is it just that the state stomps it out, or does it burn out ideologically somehow? Or
1: there are a variety of reasons, but the primary one is the revolution itself. I would it wins. say <laughs> uh, the revolution wins. Yeah. Um, but it, that doesn't stamp out revolutionary terrorism because there's still revolutionary terrorism after 1917. So, for example, Fanya Kaplan, Fanny Kaplan attempted to assassinate Vladimir Lenin in 1918. She was a socialist revolutionary. And the Socialist Revolutionary Party was the party that embraced terrorism, sort of individual terrorism, but sponsored by a party, like the Socialist Revolutionaries, as a strategy. Whereas the Bolsheviks never embraced revolutionary terrorism, they considered it a form of revolutionary romanticism, or sentimentalism, the idea that the terrorist as a hero martyr could have a transformative change um, (laughs) uh, on the government, on the world, they thought that that was just utter nonsense because they were Marxists and they believed in the masses and the dictatorship of the proletariat. So individual terrorism didn't have a place in their sort of pantry you know, in their repertoire, for them, it would be state terrorism. They would go back to the, the Jacobins.
2: It begins uh, with uh, specific attacks on individuals. There's there's uh, attempts to assassinate the Tsar as early as 1866, and, it, and it's targeting particularly government officials at a senior level who are provincial governors who are particularly in support of repressive measures.
0: That's Ian Lachlan, a senior lecturer in history at the University of Edinburgh, where he focuses particularly on the Russian Revolution and the Stalin era, and the history of intelligence, conspiracy, and espionage. It it only becomes systemic or systematic from about 1878, where basically
2: the populists, first of all, have tended to embrace enlightening the people, going to the people from about 1873, 74, and trying to persuade them to embrace revolutionary ideas. For various reasons, largely because it's been such a subject of gossip or people know about it, they get rounded up and arrested in the mid-1870s and they go to trial. And there's famous trials in 1878. And as a result of this, a few people are convicted. It's seen as slightly unjust though because all they were doing really was trying to educate the peasants. And then, quite importantly, the people who go to trial then, a lot of them turn towards terror. They've decided that there's, there's no other alternative but to remove government officials. We're carrying out these things, I mean, a day after the big trial in 1878, Vera Sosulich, uh, one populist, uh, tries to assassinate the governor of uh, St. Petersburg in kind of revenge for the injustices that are carried out against the populists. And then they formed this organization called People's Will, which s- systematically tries to assassinate the Tsar. I mean, really puts a lot of work and a lot of logistical effort into planning. They try to blow up his train. They try to blow up the Winter Palace. They they plant bombs under the streets. They plant bombs even under the canals in St. Petersburg to try and blow up bridges when the Tsar is crossing. I mean, These are really um, logistically very complex and, and involving large numbers of people efforts to murder the Tsar. So it's not about the seventh or eighth attempt that they actually succeed in 1881. And quite explicitly, there, therefore, it's a terrorist act then. It's a term which they, they, and they're not entirely averse to because of their French revolutionary credentials, but at the same time, they prefer to use other words like people's justice, the revenge, or or the liberation of the people.
0: And are the targets are they are they always government officials? Is is the idea I'm trying to understand is the terrorist acts of the of the 19th to 20th century in Russia is the idea revenge against the re- officials responsible for various injustices or attacks on officials responsible for taking ac- certain actions, or is it more kind of Symbolic or ideological, like I have in my mind. Obviously, the recent assassinations of Daria Dugina and um, and this Tatarsky blogger, you know, person, war correspondent, quote unquote, and that they are involved in promoting the invasion, but it's they're not making decisions really. And so it's it seems like there's more. It's more symbolic than than anything, I guess. Is that some, Is that very different from the kind of terrorist attacks that occurred? Like those that you're describing against the Tsar? Seems-
2: I would say they're very similar, actually, because we're, we're facing a similar situation in many ways, which is they feel as if there are certain uh, individuals who are encouraging a kind of repressive government practices. And they're, they're, they're choosing those targets, yes, for their symbolic value, but also for specifically th- the things they've done. Terrorists, when you talk about terrorism and in, in sort of the origins of it, you know, it's something which gains pace from about 1878 to 1883, something like that. And then we're only talking, though, about a few. You know, a handful of people who were, who were murdered in terrorist attacks. Uh, the, the government then permeates and penetrates the organizations with, with spies and so forth, and they round them all up, and they've largely destroyed and discredited them by the late 1880s. When it comes back again in around 1901, it's because basically the government is using conscription as a form of punishment for students who demonstrate against the regime. And basically they assassinate then again a symbolic figure, the, the, the Minister of Education. As a result of the assassination of the Minister of Education, the Minister of the Interior uh, starts to arrest large numbers of people con- connected with this, so they assassinate the Minister of the Interior. So you can see quite clearly there a direct connection between terrorist attacks and, and, and the, the actual person who's carrying out the repressions. They deliberately target people who are associated. Later down the line, then it's Clever, the Minister of the Interior, the most famous one, uh, assassinated in 1904. The Tsar seems to respond to that by thinking, well, if I keep appointing reactionary ministers in response to assassinations, and it leads to more assassinations, why don't I, why don't I appoint a liberal? So he appoints a liberal, Sviatopark but this means that the liberal allows broad meetings to happen, and this, this leads to actually the 1905 revolution, because it allows enough people to meet together, to, gather, to put together a kind of platform to stand against the regime and its failure in the war against Japan. Uh, so the Tsar seems to re- retreat from that. And the response to the 1905 revolution, again, is to appoint very reactionary interior ministers who repress terrorist movements, meet violence with violence. And, and there you see then suddenly a very widespread terror, which is very random. You know, from, from a, a, few, a handful of assassinations before this, from 1905 to 1907, you maybe see 10,000 or so murders of government officials, anybody in a uniform, anybody who works the government. It becomes a free-for-all, basically. And the government responds in kind. You know, there is sort of the use of troops to basically randomly just repress peasant areas that rose up in revolt. And, and they just say, the minister of the interior at the time, Donovo, says, just just raise the, the village to the ground. Just burn down the village. And, you know, it, it's, we, we don't have time for trials. Later down the line, being the next prime minister and interior minister, they try to murder him. They blow up, basically, his... His, his mansion on the, on the outskirts of St. Petersburg. They paralyze his daughter. They put his sons, a four-year-old son's life at risk. They kill about 40 or so people in the attack. And Stalipin responds by having field courts martial, which is basically military justice in response to anybody who might be considered harboring terrorist thoughts or whatever. And so about 1,100 people are executed in formal military courts over the next year, 1906 to 1907, just for things like owning a rifle or possibly be, being somebody who's involved in planning an attack on government officials. But the violence is pretty much tit for tat. There's a, there's a, there's a proportional same amount of violence in the terrorist versus government. And I suppose the thing, interesting thing about terrorism, the word terror, is that the Tsarist regime had within its own DNA the belief that somehow state-sponsored intimidation of society was quite a, a useful measure. Donova at the time, advised that you know, that the ancient Tsarist tradition was that a good Tsar should be terrible but gracious, so that they should inspire terror as well as be kindly and sort of uh, devout Christians and so forth and, and be capable of acts of kindness. So there seems to be a reflection between the revolutionary movement and the government in this, which you'll see carry on into the Bolshevik regime, when the Bolsheviks will often accuse their enemies of terror. The show trials of 37 to 38 are all in the West, we call it the great terror, but the, the, the Soviets themselves were accusing the people on trial in the great terror of terrorist acts. They were, they were associated with planning, assassination attempts and so forth, so they denounced terrorism there. The red terror too, is a very ambiguous thing that they, they're rounding up people and shooting people for planning terrorist attacks. They say, but they refer to it then and embrace the term red terror. The difference, I suppose, very important differences during the red terror of 1918 they embrace the word terror. They say we stand for organized terror to frighten and intimidate our enemies and to, to root out the people who seek to destroy the revolution. In 1937 to 38, when Stalin carries out mass operations, these are counter-terrorist measures, he says. He's, he's arresting people to remove terrorists from society.
0: Has it been significant throughout this history whether the terrorism is considered domestic or foreign? Yeah, a very interesting thing, I suppose. It's definitely othered the terrorism. So
2: in the late Tsarist era, terrorism was always closely associated with Jewishness. They always tended to say that, oh, this is, these are Jewish members of society, and they tended to over-exaggerate how many terrorists were Jewish, and that the revolutionaries were very conscious of this, and they, they would often withdraw Jewish conspirators from the front line of terrorist attacks so there would not be some kind of p- pogrom afterwards. And so in that sense, terror then... Was associated with the other within their own society which were jews Uh, interestingly they don't seem to emphasize a lot i suppose uh, misogynistic tropes and yet about a quarter of terrorists were were women back then as well so there was a a pronounced tendency for people who were marginalized in society to be members of terrorist gangs they tended to emphasize in the czarist period the jewish influence they would see behind terror during the red terror uh, in the civil war definitely that they associated the enemies that they were purging as being foreign spies and so forth, British and French spies, essentially. And in the great terror under Stalin, the terrorists who were arrested, the so-called terrorists, were always associated with being connected to usually German or Japanese intelligence services, but later down the line, Polish, British, and so forth. Uh, And so again, being a foreign agent was was a very common accusation against people who were supposedly uh, terrorists
1: historians usually talk about it in terms of there being two waves of terrorism so the first one was what is usually referred to as the heroic wave and that is the wave in the late 1870s early 1880s so narodnaya volya the people's will and the people's will ultimately they decided to focus on the Emperor in an Emperor Hunt. It was literally called the Emperor Hunt. And they made seven attempts on Tsar Alexander II's life and Mm -hmm. were finally successful on March 1st, 1881. But in general, what they did was target government officials, although they allowed for collateral damage. So, for example, when they finally did manage to assassinate Alexander II that was en route back to the Winter Palace. He was riding in his carriage. They had a variety of bomb throwers stationed along his route, right? They had, they had tracked it. And when they threw the first bomb at his carriage, it did not succeed. And he, he survived, you know, and he even got out of the carriage to inspect the damage, to see who had been injured, and then the second bomb thrower came onto the scene and managed to injure him fatally. Right. So there were a number of people who were fatally injured in that attempt, and even more in the attempt to assassinate him in the Winter Palace, where a bomb was planted by a member of Narodnaya volya under the Tsar's dining room. Before his dinner, it was going to be a ceremonial dinner with an invited guest, And that bomb exploded, but too early. The Tsar had been delayed coming to dinner. He didn't arrive in time, but it killed over 50 of his guard, of his Royal Guard. Uh, So there was collateral damage, but they didn't target civilians. Now, in the second wave of revolutionary terrorism that began around the Revolution of 1905, there were a variety of groupings. There were many different groupings of different ideological shades, including anarchists. And these were the ones who threw bombs in cafes and were targeted civilians or targeted really lowly government officials, Mm -hmm. like just a gendarme, you know, walking his beat. So the, the waves of terror were distinct, both in the quantity of the victims that they claimed the second wave, n- around 1905, claimed far more victims than the first. Narodnaya Voyez is very relatively focused, um, relatively limited.
0: I see. And what? what I know that uh, a lot of this is studied specifically in like the field of literature. And I wonder, what are the special insights we get from studying terrorism in this era, from the literature of the era? Is it to get an idea of the goals of the people that are committing these acts or is it just to get a sense of like the political discourse at the time? Like what is it like really gained by looking at this from a literary perspective?
1: Well, in my book, I argue that literature was crucial to actually contributing to the emergence of revolutionary terrorism, Right. right. that revolutionary terrorism would not have existed, certainly not in its form, without the contribution of literature, because literature provided the basis of this heroic culture of self-sacrifice, right? These images of these extraordinary people, these new people who were willing to endure, right? Tremendous hardship, tremendous sacrifices, even their own life, even killing someone else, right? Committing a crime, killing, taking someone else's life, because. The first wave of revolutionary terrorism in 1870, 1880s was really moralistic in many ways. I mean, and with good reason from the beginning sort of of Russian democratic literary culture. So I would say Radyshev's Journey from St. Petersburg to Moscow. There was this acknowledgement that Russia was a despotic state and that it had basically enslaved its population and that violence was a morally and even legally legitimate means. And by legally, I mean within the framework of natural law. So it was a legitimate means to use to free you know, the enslaved population and to achieve a, a, a just government. I mean justice was really the key justice was the key word and so the terrorists often saw their attacks on government officials as just retribution right it, it wasn't just revenge retribution right for their evil deeds for their injustice right and literary culture literature was the foremost i mean they didn't have obviously you know, digital media, social media, Netflix, all of that. So literature was the medium of the time. And of course, you know, anyone who knows and studies Russia knows that everything was heavily censored, but that writers found ways around it, the famous Aesopian language, but also, yeah, just indirectly addressing the issue in plots that everybody recognized were actually about the revolutionary and terrorist struggle.
0: You've mentioned that a lot of these, these uh, political attacks, they targeted either high ranking or low ranking state officials, and there's a sort of upward trending tolerance for collateral damage. What about attacks on like rival ideologues? Because I mean, that's obviously in the, in the violence we're seeing, in russia today it's it seems to be the, we have these attacks on these fairly prominent pro-invasion ideological figures. they're not necessarily you know state officials with Dugana and Tatarsky. they're like bloggers essentially who have like a prominent role on telegram where they're filming videos promoting the invasion. I wonder was any of the violence from this I don't know golden era of, of terrorism was it uh golden. was were terrorists targeting their ideological rivals like conservative figures or the other way around or was it always you know, non-state versus state. I mean, you could argue that Dugan and Tatarski have state affiliations, so there's this is not a completely legitimate comparison. But I, I wonder, like, were the grounds ever, I'm targeting you because you're my ideological opponent, not necessarily you're a state official who is, you know, actually facilitating the repression or something like that.
1: You know, I actually thought about that question. And the thing that occurred to me is that the media infrastructure, the media system, right, that produces people, these buonkori, right, these bloggers like Tatarsky, that didn't exist at all, right? It was so limited. I mean, even though there was certainly a mass media press and all of that, and some of the journalists were quite famous, I was trying to recall, like, was there a case of a famous journalist being targeted and assassinated? I mean, ideologues certainly were. But these ideologues often had high government positions, like Konstantin Pobedonostsev. Right, he was the procurator uh, of the Holy Synod, right of the Orthodox Church, um, mm-hmm. and sort of the main ideologue in the late 19th century, um, early 20th century. Pobedonostsev was himself not targeted, but he served as a model for Andrei Bely's character, hero, Apollona Bluchov in his great novel, Petersburg. Okay. So Apollona, Apollonovich. So the, yeah, I think what happened is that the ideologues who had platforms at the time actually were people in very high places, right? And so these were the people who were targeted. Um.
0: Thinking about these recent assassinations, with uh, you know, Dugana being killed and then Tatarsky being killed by what seems to be a, a woman, I wonder: was there a particular role that women played, or feminism played historically in terrorism of the nineteenth and twentieth century in Russia?
1: Yeah, they definitely did. You know, so I think this is one of the things that is the most fascinating and striking about Russian revolutionary terrorism is that there were so many women who were, relatively speaking, who were active in it, and who were not only active, but became the most famous Russian revolutionary terrorists, and not just in Russia, but internationally as well. So they really captured the imagination of the Russian public, the worldwide public. And of course, the primary one, the number one, is Vera Zasulich. And I know that on Russian Twitter, after Tatarsky's assassination, there were some jokes going back and forth referring to the Zasulich assassination because her victim's name was Fyodor Trepov. And here we have Daria Trepova is the assassin. And so people thought that that was ironic, a, li- right. a little bit funny. And yes, so certainly Vera Zasulich, the scenario was in many ways parallel. But Vera Sasulich was actually a committed revolutionary with a long history in the radical movement. And she and her friend, Maria Kalinkina, they were avenging a specific political prisoner who had been tortured. And they planned a double strike. But only Vera was able to gain access to her victim, the governor of St. Petersburg, Trepov. And she was able to do it. Because she was wearing a very heavy shawl, you know, looked like just an ordinary woman, and she was applying to him for a certificate of good conduct, and so she was able to get close to him, and at that point pulled out the revolver. It was a bulldog revolver from her shawl and shot him at point blank range while his guard, you know, everyone was around him, but the situation was so. in, In many ways, it was similar, in many ways different, because just as in Daria Trepova's case, everyone saw her give the statue. She was still there, arrested shortly thereafter. But when Vera Zasulich was arrested, immediately, you know, she said, I did this for the political prisoner, Bagalyubov, you know. And so she, it, she wanted her act to send this very clear message to the government why she had done this. And that's what makes Trepova's the tiny snippets of video they have shown of her confession, so out of line with the image of the revolutionary female terrorist and the narrative and the script because of the way that she answers the questions that they pose to her. You know, if she were to say, I did this for Navalny, you know, then it would be, it would accord with this script. But here it's just totally off. It's just totally off. So it's as if they're taking the frame in some way because the assassin, I believe, of Daria Dugina or the Ukrainian woman, right, Natalia Volk, also she was a woman, and so it's like taking the frame, but not the details that in any way make it convincing. As if they couldn't be bothered, or they don't know it, or whatever, you know. And this is on the assumption that. These women are being used in a setup of some kind that they have in some way been put up to this or are being set up. And of course, that's just an assumption. I don't know that. But all I can say is I see this and I say, yes, it's a woman. It's a woman terrorist. So it does have that resonance with Russian revolutionary terrorism and Vera Zasulich and Vera Figner and Sofia Perovskaya. But in other ways, it's totally off in the lack of conviction and in the desire to message, you know, why, why are they committing the act? So, yeah. I wondered, Kevin, I don't know if I should read this poem. The poem is called The Threshold. And it is Ivan turgenev's poem about the female terrorist. It was written supposedly after, as a reflection on Vera Zasulich's assassination attempt. And It just presents the image of the female terrorist as this hero martyr, this self-sacrificial hero martyr. So I'm gonna read the whole thing and you could edit it or use it any way you want. Um, The the translation, and it's fine, I don't think there's an English translation, but it's called The Threshold, okay? And it's a prose poem. I see an enormous building. At the front, a narrow door is flung open. Behind the door, forbidding gloom, a girl stands before the high threshold, a Russian girl. The impenetrable doom breathes frost, and with icy streams, a deliberate hollow voice resounds from the depths of the building. Oh, you who wish to cross this threshold, do you know what awaits you? I know, the girl answers. Cold, hunger, hate, ridicule, contempt, humiliation, prison, disease, and death itself? I know. Total isolation, loneliness. I know, I'm prepared. I will tolerate all the suffering, all the blows. Not only from an enemies, but also from family, from friends. Yes, from them as well. Good, are you prepared for sacrifice? Yes, for anonymous sacrifice. You will die and no one, no one will even know whom to commemorate. I need neither gratitude nor pity. I do not need a name. Are you prepared to commit a crime? The girl lowered her head. And I'm prepared to commit a crime. The voice did not immediately resume its questions. Do you know, the voice began at last, that you may lose faith in what you believe now? That you may come to understand that you deceived yourself and that you destroyed your young life in vain? I know that also. And nevertheless, I want to enter. Enter. The girl crossed the threshold and a heavy curtain fell behind her. Fool, scraped someone behind. Saint came from somewhere in answer.
0: Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.